Hi, everybody. This is Father Jim. Before we get to today's homily, I just want to say a word of thank you to everyone who's contributed to our Newman Catholic Christmas 2023 appeal. As of December 2nd, we're at about $9,000 towards our goal of $35,000 for this season. Uh, so thank you all so much. This was a great Giving Tuesday, and our first week was at 25% of our goal, which is fantastic for us. Uh, if you're interested in donating or want to learn some more information, just go to redhawkcatholic.com. And there's all kinds of information about who we are and what we do. And in the top right corner is a link to donate. And we appreciate your consideration. Thanks so much. God bless and have a great week. My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. Reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Jesus said to his disciples, be watchful, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It is like a man traveling abroad. He leaves home and places his servants in charge, each with his own work, and orders the gatekeeper to be on the watch. Watch, therefore. You do not know when the Lord of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or in the morning. May he not come suddenly and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all, watch. The gospel of the Lord. While it may have been used before, the phrase too big to fail wasn't as familiar to most individuals till around 2007, 2008. And that's when the banks in the United States and around the world found themselves amid a financial crisis that some claim was as severe as the Great Depression. And to avoid a further economic catastrophe, arguing that because these different financial institutions were so intertwined with so many other businesses that it would have this domino effect causing other companies and industries to face potential ruin. These banks were said to be too big to fail, which meant the government had to bail them out, or more specifically, all of us taxpayers had to bail them out whether we wanted to or not. That phrase, though, too big to fail, seems to be getting deployed more frequently in the years that have followed. The other night, this podcast had a, a bunch of individuals discussing marketing, entertainment, financial issues. And they talked about how Disney, in one year, has lost close to $200 billion. And how Anheuser-Busch has lost over $27 billion in just four months because of both companies inserting themselves into some political and cultural issues that 
suffice it to say, are controversial. One of the guests speculated that there were executives who must have thought they might upset some people that both companies have been around for so long that they could weather whatever fallout they might receive. Yet now, both examples are being cited as contenders for who's committed the greatest act of brand suicide. All of these crises, whether it was the banks in 2007 or Disney, Anheuser-Busch this year, have many things in common, but one in particular is an astonishing arrogance where they've even created this vocabulary that's been accepted, too big to fail. Says who? It's somewhat shocking to see these types of massive examples occurring where people rightly wonder, how is it possible to continue to make such mistakes without learning from them? Some even getting away with them, whether not facing any criminal charges or after making one mess at one company, finding a job relatively quickly at another one. And one of the commentators speculating on who was worse, Disney or Anheuser-Busch, said somewhat philosophically, if you think that you're more powerful than your audience, you have lost the plot. As the rest of the panel argued what's going to happen next and whether other companies might be a little bit more thoughtful before making similar foolish and destructive moves. But as people of faith, we realize that this hubris, this lack of humility, is not a new phenomenon and will likely continue as humanity being humanity. While they might not have ever said it, over 2,500 years ago, the Israelites had fallen for that lie that they too were too big to fail. They had been God's chosen people. He chose them. That's pretty remarkable. And they saw what that meant. Centuries before, these amazing signs and wonders, God himself appearing to Moses in a bush that was on fire, but not consuming the bush, leading the people out of slavery in Egypt into freedom with more miracles like the ten plagues, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, leading them to the parting of the Red Sea, to being fed with manna, this heavenly bread that literally rained down upon them while they were in the wilderness. They heard, they saw, they experienced the power of the Lord God. And they knew, and there was, and there is no other. But Israel had, as our marketing friend put it, lost the plot, so to speak. Namely, in their presumption of God's protection and favor. Conveniently forgetting how they had turned from God. So once again, the people find themselves oppressed by foreigners who hate them, enslaving and humiliating them to the point that they realize they're in deep, deep trouble. God's chosen people look like they're about to be obliterated. That's what we hear with the prophet Isaiah sounding somewhat confused in this beautifully poetic first reading. You, Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. You're named forever. He begins that way, but then he shifts in the following sentence. Why do you let us wander? 
from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not. And then he shifts back praying that God would rend the heavens, come down with the mountains quaking before you, doing awesome deeds as he had done before, knowing that no ear has ever heard, no eye has ever seen any God but you doing such deeds. At first, it kind of sounds like Isaiah is blaming God, but he's not. He's overwhelmed by the sinfulness of his fellow people. He's saddened seeing what they had done with God's most precious and generous gifts to humanity of freedom. He's horrified with the lack of faithfulness and how far they have fallen, having been God's chosen people. He wonders, were they still? And you can hear the tension of that question as Isaiah recalls all of God's goodness, what he has done, what he can do, and he asks, why couldn't you save us from ourselves? Which is ultimately the question. Why does God take this massive gamble in allowing us to turn away? To turn away from his law, to turn away from his commandments, to turn away from his love, to turn away from him? And while Isaiah knows what God is capable of doing, while he wishes for that to be made manifest amid these dire circumstances, he knows we are sinful. We become like unclean people. All of our good deeds are like polluted rags. Isaiah knows that this is a mess of their own creation. They have learned quite well. They are not too big to fail. But Isaiah ends on a hopeful note. You are our father. We are the clay. And you, the potter. We are all the work of your hands. Isaiah doesn't see how things will ever turn around to get better. But he knows that it has to start with the people having a change of heart. Remembering the plot. They could still be God's chosen people. But that would require repenting of their self-sufficiency, born of ignorance and unfounded self-righteousness, and looking to God as their father, humbling themselves to see the need to be clay that needs to be refashioned by the master's potter's hands. It's obvious why the prophet's words greet us as we begin this holy season of Advent. In the year 2023, seemingly everywhere we turn is disturbing news that seems to either broadcast or sow seeds of instability and anxiety and fear. War drums being banged by people who will never set foot on any battlefield themselves, but easily will send others sons and daughters. Economic predators whose greed seems to know no bounds. Health scares are being launched, terrorizing people who are still traumatized from COVID. And the list can go on and on. So as people of faith, it's not unreasonable for us to come together and want to join our voices with Isaiah. God, just rend the heavens. Just come down. 
fix this, fix that, fix us, save us from ourselves. But we can't just take that part of the scripture, that quote out of context, and forget the rest of what Isaiah says. We have to internalize the rest of his calls and recognize we have even more significant issues as a people than the Israelites ever did. When we see how quote-unquote advanced we are as a society and as a world and consider some realities, we need to be concerned that we have so much stuff, so much food, so much convenience, yet so many people are struggling and starving and homeless, whether globally or right in our own backyards. That's unconscionable. That we can see and hear vulgarity and violence and pornography, not on some cable TV channel that you can block, but that our children can and do see it on their phones. And what that's doing to their their minds and their hearts, what it's doing to all of our minds and hearts, that that barely even makes it into public discourse, let alone debate, is disturbing. And that we have so much science and knowledge and experience to the point that every couple I know that's expecting a child is almost overloaded with appointments, measuring every possible thing imaginable, evaluating week by week the growth and development of their baby son or daughter. And yet abortion is still legalized as this horrific crime against humanity that a large number will argue in favor of is astonishing. For all of my life, the argument that some used to offer was that a bunch of people on the Supreme Court just decided that and there was nothing they could do. That's not the case anymore. People are now actually voting to make abortion legal. So there's a greater moral responsibility on all of us than ever before. And we can go on and on. And that's not to dismiss any of those issues as not worth worth digging deeper into. They and many others demand men and women who claim to be of Judeo-Christian faith to be addressed as God's people. But for us as Catholic Christians, beginning this holy season of Advent, that's an essential message that the scriptures confront us with, which kind of seems surprising The avalanche of Christmas marketing numbs us, and many of us, myself included, have succumbed to all those beautiful tasks and traditions of preparing for Christmas. The Advent's almost treated like the church just trying to tap the brakes on them and remembering the reason for the season. But Advent is more than just about Jesus being born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, that first Christmas. Pope Benedict XVI once beautifully said, Advent is living on the closeness of God and toward the closeness of God. As Catholic Christians, as much as we're facing much more significant challenges than the Israelites of Isaiah's day and age, that's why we're confident and hopeful because we're not crying out to God and waiting for him to reveal himself or his plan. 
Jesus Christ has been born and crucified and risen from the dead. We're not to pretend like those things didn't happen so we could be surprised at Christmas. That's our hope. This cry of Isaiah for God to come down has been fulfilled. And to the cries of concern of humanity in our day and age, Jesus speaks directly to us in today's gospel. The entire tone of the gospel reading is far from the idyllic strains of the silent night. This passage comes from Jesus speaking to his apostles and his disciples right before his passion and death, warning them that one of the consequences of that, which would look like and would feel like the end of the world to the Jews of Jesus' day and age, was the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen a few decades later. The loss of this, their city, this, their temple, coupled with the horrific slaughter of over 1.1 million Jews in less than five months. It's a reminder of how often our elder brothers and sisters of the covenant have suffered atrocities at the hands of evil men. That's the historical context of Jesus saying, be watchful, be alert. But the church has seen and heard in this a deeper spiritual message to his followers of every day and age. We have to be mindful of the spiritual warfare that is still continuing. That the evil one, the devil, with his lies and his manipulations, his lulling people into complacency and lukewarmness, are still at work and will be until the end of time. And that there will be great, done, great harm done from all that. But unlike Isaiah, we have met God. We hear him speaking directly to us in these words. And we dare to receive Jesus' very body and blood into the innermost part of ourselves where we receive the Eucharist. And so to us, he says, be watchful, be alert, watch. In the world where we constantly hear about people being woke, Jesus is calling us to wake up. In a world of hardening of hearts, where God has gone from being mocked and denied to openly hated in graphic ways that I won't even deign to share, when we see continued examples that make us fearful and worried by things that we see and experience that feel like the end times, these words are meant to shake us, telling us not to focus on those things, focus on him. A year ago, I first learned of and I started reading this book entitled Advent of the Heart. And it was written by this priest named Father Alfred Delp, who was falsely accused, arrested, and eventually martyred by the Nazis in 1945. What put him in their crosshairs was that he often preached about the horrors that they were experiencing and feared of his time. And Father Delp wrote this collection of homilies while he was expecting that he was going to be killed, just as millions of others were, giving an incredible weight to his reflections. And he said, Advent means a heart that's awake and ready. And in one moving homily, he challenged his congregants, yes, Arise, 
It is time to awaken from sleep. It is time for an awakening to begin somewhere. And it's time that someone places things again in the order that they were given by the Lord God. Moreover, it is time for each individual to use every opportunity to guide life into this order now and to do it with the same unshakability with which the Lord will come. No one, nothing, no people, no institution, no nation can ever be said to be too big to fail. History is a particularly sobering reminder of that reality. But our source, our origin, our destiny, and our confidence comes from our God, who hears our cries and does rend the heavens in this very time, in this very space, at this very mass, reminding us that the only plot that ultimately matters is found in Him. Will we awaken and be watchful and be alert to his presence already in our midst, realizing that it's believing in him and perceiving his presence that we have everything we could ever want or need?